Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Welcome to Pansa Pansa. I'm your host, Kemi Seriki, and today I'm having a conversation with Mr. Abdullahi Sisi, the founder of BABA, Bridging African and the Black American. So welcome to Pansa Pansa podcast, Abdullahi Sisi. This is a long-awaited conversation, and I'm so delighted that you are coming on this platform to have conversation with me. So as I always ask my guests, can you fully introduce yourself Talk a little bit about your background to our audience as to where you were born, where you spent most of your childhood and adult life. Thank you, Sister Kemi Sereki, mm-hmm. for inviting me on to Pansa Pansa. Finally, I've seen your program. I've heard about it from uh, a mutual friend of mine, Dr. Kalechi Ifi Lambert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, finally, I've been qualified to come on this wonderful uh, platform. You always qualify. <laughs> but uh, my name is Abdullah Cisse. I reside here in the Bronx, New York. And uh, I've been a resident of the Bronx virtually my entire upbringing. I am originally from Guinea-Conakry in West Africa. I identify as uh, both a Black person in America and in New York and the Bronx and then also a West African. I am multifaceted, uh, just as you all are as well. My role in the community, as of recently, I am the executive director and the founder for uh, Bridging Africa and Black America, mm-hmm. short for BABA, B-A-B-A Inc. Incorporated. And we are a community-based nonprofit that calls for unity and provides provides social services mm-hmm. and educational programs to our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a ton of work. We've been doing a ton of work regarding the fire relief recently. Uh, but outside of that, uh, we encourage and amplify the importance of education and uniting the entire Black diaspora. And really, per- just personally, right, like outside of uh, those those pitches and some of those like on paper statements as to who I am, I'm just a community servant. You know, I want to spend the rest of my life just doing as much good as I can for my neighbors uh, and, and for our people. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure our culture is preserved, our voices are heard, and we're seen as, as a people and as a community. Thank you for that. So before we talk most deeply about what you're doing with Baba, because I want to dig into 
much more of what you're doing. And now we started as a community activist, I would say. I would like us to discuss your immigrant identity and your Black experience. For our audience who may not know, can you talk a little bit about your childhood growing up in an African immigrant home? How was it like growing up in an African immigrant home? What are your challenges or struggles when you were growing up? I would say growing up was fun. You know, growing up was great. You're not aware of many of like the social injustices and problems. Some people may look at your community as poor. Some people may look at your household income as mm-hmm. poor. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I didn't feel that. So that's good. That means I grew up in a blessed home. We were rich in culture and spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in, in my community, I, I would say that also, right? I grew up in the Bronx, influenced by hip-hop and, you know, playing a lot of basketball and, uh, you know, getting into some <laughs> juvenile trouble here and there, you know, little things. But those experiences uh, are what made our summers and our nights here growing up in the Bronx. I always say growing up in the Bronx in the summertime, like there's no place like it. I wouldn't want to have it any other way. Because I love New York so much and because I love the Bronx so much, I had to move back because I've been away in Connecticut uh, for a few years now. Uh, But it's just the richness in the culture of the Bronx and in New York that I craved for and I wanted to come back. Mm -hmm. So growing up in an immigrant household, you have one culture at home, but then when you go outside, you know, your other identities uh, pull at you listening to rap music, playing basketball, wearing expensive sneakers and expensive clothes, going out to like parties, you know, teenage parties Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of which I wasn't allowed to go to. You know, I would say I was a child that listened. I I listened to those curfews that I had. Uh, I feel like the younger generation now, like, you know, the the younger people, I would Mm -hmm. call my little brothers and sisters, They don't care about any of that. Like they don't, I feel like they listen less to uh, some of those limitations that their parents do. I'll leave it there and I'll wait for your next. You are so right. And I'm glad that you're able to bring that out because many who may listen to this because of those implementation of certain value that your parents put in place, like your curfew. I'm not buying you expensive sneakers. Okay. I'm not buying you all these expensive things. Did they not pay off today? Absolutely. You're being saved from trouble. Really bad things happen in late hours of the night, especially back then, you know, where there were stop and frisks and there wasn't as much transparency to the corruption of the police department. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes we will, you know, young black men in America, we don't, we're not looking for trouble. We're just out trying to show off our clothes, maybe find some girls to hang out with, that sort of stuff. Um, but the police will see you as a group and just arrest all of you all. Mm-hmm. That begins the cycle of a criminal record in some sense. Mm-hmm. So when our parents are telling us just to stay at home, you know, to stay out of trouble, um, they're really just protecting us. So mm-hmm. uh, for the ones who do listen, you give yourself an opportunity to not be a victim, you know, to not be a victim of the system of oppression. Yeah. I wish more young people would listen to some of that advice. Okay. That brought me, it wasn't even part of, I'm glad that some of the statement you just made that children should listen. That brings me to this question of how many of our African youth now talks about African immigrant parents do not allow us to intermingle 
with African-Americans. You know, they're trying to prevent us from intermingling with African-Americans without understanding that African immigrant parents, they're starting things that is so foreign to them. Because back home, you know your next door neighbor. You know who's two blocks away. If there's any misunderstanding that may have gone, gone on between you and your child, it's something that you could resolve amicably. And for African immigrant parents and the children, if they get in trouble, sometimes they are confused. They don't even know how to go about navigating through the system. The how will I go? Where will I be? Okay, so I'm glad that you're able to brought that up. That is not just listen to your parents and follow the directives of what they are trying to tell you. Because sometimes you might feel like, oh, they, they are too disciplinary. They are such a disciplinary. They don't want to give you freedom. But it's not that, it's fear that what they have of what may be going on within the environment, within the community, because there's so many African-American parents and the family who also prevent their children from moving around certain gangs, certain group of people, you know, that I don't want you getting in trouble. So I'm glad that you're able to bring that up because that's very important. So what would you say are the benefits, apart from growing up in an African immigrant home? I want to hear from you. What are the benefits? Most of the times you grow up in a two-parent household. We live here in America. We, we know there's a high divorce rate and there's many, many, many people who grow up in a single-parent home. I would say from my lived experience and also from my observation, most African children grow up in a two-parent home here in America. Yeah. Uh, so you have uh, the upbringing, the love, the discipline, you know, the care compassion from two different uh, uh, perspectives, from two different individuals with two different skill set. You have your family, um, your usually large family. Um, You know, you all might be shackled and jam-packed in a small apartment in New York City, but that sort of sense of community uh, pays off in the future. Yeah. Um, when you need someone to lean on, uh, you have your 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 culture, your foods, you're taught how to cook, uh-huh. you're taught how to clean. <laughs> There's so much. You know, we have our identity. You know, unlike uh, some Black people in the world, we have a history, we have a lineage that we can be a student of and we can be ambassadors of, mm-hmm. you know, so the, the benefit of growing up being African is endless. It is. None of you ever talk that you don't talk about the food. And I hope you cook yourself as well, not just because you're a man that you won't be able to learn to cook or even cook for your wife sometimes at home. You understand what I'm saying? So it's a good thing. And I think the idea of having extended family who also reside in the household is is very powerful because, you know, when you're talking about, I will talk about new immigrants who are coming in from Africa because when I came here in the 80s, the idea is when you come in, you are just going to school. When you finish school, you're going back home. So we all also live together, but many of us don't even have children at that time. Until when later on, then we start finding out that, you know what, we can't just go back home. <laughs> you know, we have to stay in this country. And then you start having children. But it's so powerful to have uncles and all other relatives within the same community. Because I would say mostly Francophone Americans live within the same, uh, you know, Francophone Africans. You know, I hate to define us as French speaking or English speaking. They're very close knit. You know, you go to the same mosque and that's very powerful because there's always somebody who will share wisdom and look after those children and give them other support that the parents, as a parent, is so much you could give. 
but other people's support is also important. When you talk about single parents, I was, I'm a single parent to raise my two children by myself, but I have to connect with other people as well to be a mentor for them. I have to create a community by myself also to connect with other group of people, whether Black, African-Americans, you know, Latino, or even the white Caucasian-Americans to be able to build, build that village and the connection. And that's very powerful, and I'm so glad to hear that. So what language did you speak at home when you were growing up? Ndi maninka kanfo. Okay. Na franche kanfo ya, ti wunya, aprendi yangla kanfo na. So, uh, so, so, kui, uh, okay, <laughs> so I thought I would answer your question in in, in some of, uh, okay <laughs> in the native language. Okay, so I spoke Malinke right there to answer okay. your question, and I said I speak my native language of Malinke. I dibble and dabble in French. Okay, je, je comprends français, mais je parle pas beaucoup. Also, there's uh, another ethnic language from Guinea called Susu. Okay. You know, I'm starting to pick up wow. some, pieces, some languages on that. It's wonderful. I would say, though, I am fluent in Malinke okay. and English. Those are the two languages that I'm fluent yeah. That's so great. And, and like I said, the French-speaking African community, um, the children actually pick up the language because many times they have to translate for their parents. And because of that, you tend to pick the language faster than the English-speaking Africans in this country. Because many of those who the parents speak English, their children don't speak, many of them don't speak the native tongue. My children are an example of that. They don't speak Yoruba. That's one thing that I think I admire mostly about the Francophone Africans who are here. Because the children speak the multiple dialects, they speak French, and they speak the traditional language as well. Because most times, you know, that's the language being spoken at home. And a lot of time is actually one thing that I found that regarding multi-language being spoken, those children become more bilingual and it makes them even much more smarter because they have to translate between one language to the other. Imagine there's some form of brain development that comes into that. And I hope you're teaching your son the same. I am. I'm trying. He speaks both, right? So, and when I say speak, I I use that term loosely. So he'll be two next month. He expresses himself in both languages. Wow. Yeah. So his mother, I would say she's mostly like his teacher right now, you know? So (laughs) she'll sit down with him with English books, teach him English. And then also when it's time to tell him that he's doing something wrong, <laughs> sometimes we'll tell him in our language and then he'll like he'll pick those words up. Yes. So one word that he says a lot, because he hears it a lot, is atu. <laughs> atu means stop. So when someone is doing something to him that he wants you to stop, he'll say atu. Atu. <laughs> That is so beautiful. (laughs) I love that. You're passing it down because he too will become much more bilingual in that language. And it's a sense of pride. It's a sense of saying, you know, this is my connection. I'm so glad that you brought this up because this is something that I think about a lot. And I do speak my language pretty well, but it's not my language of comfort, right? So I think in, in the English language, I'm able to just like more quickly and comfortably express myself in the English language. So like if I'm speaking to someone that I subconsciously knows English very well, Mm -hmm. I may revert to speaking English. Right. And that could be a problem when it comes to 
what language is spoken in my house, you know, with yes. my children. And I think about that. And that has also uh, made me start to just try to be more comfortable with my language. I speak it well, but I just try to be more comfortable with it. And since I made the decision, my wife, we started to say to each other well, a lot more, a lot, a lot more. I'm actually very, very proud of that, actually. Uh, however, I would feel like a failure as a father if my children are unable to speak my native language. Yes. Seriously. And, but like I said, I'm taking steps, right? So, you know, my wife and I, are, we speak a lot more to each other. And then also, I don't want my children to call me dad. It's, it's just one thing that I'm picking. It's an English term that I'm picking on, right? I, you know, I could pick on a lot of things, but that's the one thing I don't want them to call me that because I feel that a child and a parent, the connection to them mm-hmm. really should be like your native language. You know, I feel that we shouldn't have to have, you know, a foreign agency between mm-hmm. us, you know, when it comes to just transmitting information and love. Me having my son not call me dad and call me Baba, and I know that's more of a universal mm-hmm. term of calling someone father. You know, I think that's just like a tenant, you know, just to remind the, all of us that we are not American only. You know, we're not mm-hmm. uh, European only. Mm-hmm. And we have language, right? There are some things as Africans, mm-hmm. we don't have because mm-hmm. of whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But we have language. Mm-hmm. We have like for the things that we do have, we have clothes, mm-hmm. we have music. Mm-hmm. Why don't we should use those things that we have and not let those things just fade away? Yep. And I'm so happy that you said that because even with my children, let me just say something. Of course, you know, they don't speak the language, but I say to them most of the stuff that I say, they understand. They never call me mommy. They call me yami, which is means my mother in my language. So when other Nigerians hear them saying yami, they say, why don't you tell them to call me mommy? I say, mommy will eventually become mommy. So yami is distinct. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so everybody that they meet, that's yami, that's yami to the extent. Some of their friends think that's my original name. <laughs> they call me yami. I love it. I love it. I've never heard that. Thank you for teaching me that. Just to back what you just said now, because you want your son, I never thought about that's so powerful what you just said. You want to connect with him, calling you Baba, which is so important rather than that. It is so important that your child is able to connect with you through your language and call you Baba instead of calling you Dad. That's very powerful. And I hope those who will listen to this will use this as an example to understand this is how we continue to empower our language and our connection with our children because our relationship is very important. As many may know, the black, the term black identity is foreign to many African immigrants because in most African countries, ethnicity defines who you are, not your color of your skin, not about the color of your skin. Would you say growing up in an immigrant home, your black identity was recognized? I would say yes. What you're saying your leading to the question is true. You know, we do have tribalism, of course. We have the perspective of ethnicity in our country, really mostly for bad. I don't think we even approach ethnicity differences for good ever. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would say yes, because again, you would have to be very naive 
and like blinded to history to not consider race, to not consider your black identity in comparison to your white people? I would say yes. I would say growing up in, in my household and even in the community, black Africans, there's an inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this idea that white is right mm-hmm. and white is better. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's why we quickly let go of who we are and pick up other people's cultures. It's why young African kids call their parents daddy when, you know, we have those terms. Mm-hmm. It's why we're so quick to wear, you know, mm-hmm. European clothing. It's because there's that inferiority complex, um, because some people look at history and they look at the wins that the Europeans have had mm-hmm. and they interpretate that as them being better when that's completely not the case. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And you're so right about that. The complexity of that comes from colonization of Africa. I've been in a diversity meeting of parents of color meeting, and I told them, I said, black white supremacy is not only within America, it's all over the world. Anywhere you go, the identity of whiteness is much more powerful than any other race combined because they did a good work in implementing their way of life their language and everything else as part of the false world. And that's what almost all over the world they follow. It's now that the acknowledgement and recognition is being seen and said, you know what, we have to talk about our own. But I just want to brought you to our first generation. They like to talk about the elders of the community not recognizing their Black identity, the struggle that comes with it. Do you believe that is a fair judgment of elders of the community in terms of not understanding that parents also are struggling and they're trying to navigate through this unfamiliar, racialized society. It's true. My immediate family, Mm -hmm. they know that I feel about white supremacist mindset and the false idea of black inferiority. They know how I feel about that. And I I constantly remind them, I've been doing this for years, and Whenever, you know, white people do horrible crimes, I say, hey, look, here is these people who you guys never like to think of as being bad, doing really horrible thing Mm -hmm. that black people never do yet. Even though they've done all these horrible crimes against humanity, they have this clean stereotype of being Mm -hmm. angels. Here's an example. And I've done that so many times. I think finally, I think the Kool-Aid that they've drank of white supremacy has been dimmed. It's dimming. Mm -hmm. It's dimming. And also, I would say, I also believe they don't pay attention to racial issues Mm -hmm. as much. I believe because we are people who uh, believe in the hereafter. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, some of the injustices mm-hmm. that happen here in this world, Islam teaches us that you will get your justice in the hereafter. Uh, yes. You will get your justice in the hereafter. Yes. So I think that's another reason why some of the racial issues that the youth talks about, the older generation don't talk about as much. Yes. Wow. That's true. It's just the way that we tend to see things regarding how sometimes, you know, we look at ourselves, 
how we judging ourselves or our children judging us regarding, oh, you know, you are not understanding our struggle as a black person in this country, or you are not thinking about what we're struggling with. You know, it shouldn't be that way and all that stuff. So that's part of what I wanted to bring out. So you are so right with some of the points that you brought up. So you went to college right here in the city? No, I went to Connecticut. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, you went, went away to, to college? Yeah, I had an older brother out there and, you know, I wanted to, so I'll, I'll say this, right? So I actually didn't get my green card for some years in high school. I was partially undocumented. I, like I had a social security number. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a green card. So I couldn't go to a school that, you know, was expensive or was more than the bare minimum, like a community college. The original school that I wanted to go to, which was an HBCU, Delaware State University, I couldn't go because in order to apply for FAFSA, you have to be documented, at least at that time. I don't know if that's changed. So I just went to Connecticut and, uh, you know, I was there with my brother and I went to like a local uh, college over there and I, you know, paid out of pocket. You know, I learned a little bit. Within a couple of years, I was able to get my green card and then, you know, apply for FAFSA and then, you know, go to like a British school and all of that. And then I studied business, business marketing. And I was in the business sector for a while. And even now still, I feel my professional foundation is that of a business student or a business professional. Mm -hmm. And I've taken a lot of what I learned in the business world and transferred it into community service and and community organizing. That's good. So you lived in the campus. As an African parent, a lot of time we want our children to be in academics so much. So when you were in college, do you do extracurricular activities when you were in college? No, I I didn't because, um, as I said, I didn't have like that traditional high school to college pipeline. I didn't have that. It was it was kind of like a little uncertain. You know, it took me, I would say, I got my four-year degree mm-hmm. like nine years after I graduated high school. Wow. It wasn't the traditional path, but it's a path that mm. m- many people actually have to take because right. there are a lot of limitations that Black immigrants face. Yeah. There are a lot of limitations that just even generational Black Americans face. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be economical. It could be just a disbelief in the college educational system. It could be quite a few. It could, or it could just be just a lack of motivation from the individual. You know, like mm-hmm. I became more of a student after I graduated college. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm always learning now. I'm always researching now. I'm always writing now. You know, that wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. That's so wonderful. That is so wonderful. But you were living with your brother or you were living on the campus? I never lived on campus. I, oh, okay. I, we, I, had, an, I had an off-site uh, residence with my brother. Residence. Yeah. That's wonderful, you know, because a lot of time when many of our children, the reason why I tend to ask this question when they go to college, they tend to only click among other African immigrant children without extending themselves to African American Student Association or the Caribbean or even, you know, integrate into the Caucasian community. Because no matter what we do, we still have to work with this group, this diversity of group in America, because that's the melting pot of everything. So that's why I tend to ask those questions. It's a great question. And, mm-hmm. and I know where the inspiration comes from, because a lot of our community, young students in our community, that's what they do, especially 
the Nigerians, especially the Ghanaians. Like you go to college campuses and there's a lot of beautiful young black scholars and mm -hmm. academics. They go in there and they're organized. Like those are experiences I wanted to have. I wish yeah, I would have right. had. It's why I wanted to go to I wanted to go to an HBCU, you know, oh, Delaware yeah. State University. Yeah. I didn't know had I went there, I would have I would have had all, all of those experiences, you wow. know. But uh, as I said, you know, that is the traditional route, but mm -hmm. some of us don't take that. Before 2016, 17, I was really not practicing my culture. Okay. So I graduated high school in 2007. Leaving high school and like college years per se, I wasn't as upfront with my culture as I am today. Yeah. Yeah. You understand? So one, I didn't have the opportunity to be with young Africans in college, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really interested in that. But like I said, as long as there's another day, there's always an opportunity of to, course. to live, of live course. your best life. And, yeah. you know, this is why, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about this yesterday or the day mm -hmm. before. I was like, man, I am very African today. And I'm so proud of that because like that always wasn't the case for me. Like mm -hmm. I remember consciously 2016, 2017, which was only five, six years ago when I said, I need to like be more African. And now I am mad African. <laughs> I am African like as an individual, yes. as an organizer, as an academia. Yes. Just in so many ways, so many ways. Now I want to talk about Baba and other community activism that you were engaged in. I've been living in the Bronx for so many years, especially working in the area of um, South Bronx. I never knew about Baba and the wonderful and selfless, I will call selfless work your organization is doing within the community. Dr. Kelechi Lamba, like we said before, introduced me to you, Mr. Abdullahi Sise, and you and I recently collaborated a community conversation along with Dr. Kelechi Lambert as well of My Black is Transnational on the experience of African immigrant parents and their children as they are trying to balance between two worlds. So once again, I really appreciate you collaborating with me in such important community discussion and for coming to Pansa Pansa podcast to come and have conversation with me today. I really appreciate you. So I know you initially introduced what Baba is. So for so many who never heard of Baba, what does Baba mean and what prompted your interest in starting the organization? Absolutely. Great question. I am a West African immigrant here in America, and there are a lot of us. So growing up with a dual identity or a multifaceted identity, as we talked about earlier mm -hmm. in this podcast, um, I connected both with the recently arrived African immigrants and their identity and their perspectives and things that they have to say. But I also connected and identified with the Black people who have been here for generations and generations and generations. A few years ago, I would say like 2019, I wanted to create something where both groups could be engaged and come together to find a medium, get along better. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the idea that I had. And, you know, obviously different people do this in many different ways. Yeah. I was introduced to the nonprofit space, you know, based on like some things that happened. And I was like, huh, okay, 
I'm going to take this idea of joining, of building a community and bring our people together to serve. We need to like do a lot for our community anyway, because we can't count on other people to fix our issues. Yes. And when we do that, just got to make sure we're doing it together, you know, mm-hmm. so that way we could talk, we could, you know, Hey, Hey, so-and-so tell, you know, we can learn more about each other. And, and in that conversation and in that dialogue, you know, some of the issues and the false narratives and misconceptions could be at bay. Yeah. So that was the idea that I had. And in 2020, I took that idea and I, you know, I, I shared it. You know, I, I used technology and social media, mm-hmm. created a logo, and I shared it. And I wrote up, uh, you know, a mission statement that's yeah. very different from what it is today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people loved it. They loved the logo. They supported it. And one of the places that I shared this on was WhatsApp. Many people reached out to me and said, I love this idea. I love this idea. I love this idea. So I started to identify who could help me build it because I knew I didn't have the time or the skill set to mm-hmm. take the organization to where I wanted to. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we went through like the first cycle of people who wanted to assist that first, mm-hmm. um, but they were unable to, to the point where we are at today, where we have a functional organization that has my partner in service, brother Nova Felda Nana Asare. Okay. The third, I believe that's his name. So mm-hmm. he's our education and programs officer. I'm the executive director. So we're the two main staff on the ground doing the day-to-day stuff. Yes. We have a big group of volunteers, I would say anywhere from 30 to 50 people who have assisted, who who has given us some sort of assistance in some capacity since the organization um, has been operating. And we have a board of of about four other people, three other people, and then myself and Nova, we also have a dual role as being board members also. Yes. Our organization, again, what we do is we provide social support services, social support services. What that is, that could mean anything. It could be immigration needs. It could be health care. It could be civic engagement programs. It could be programs on public safety, financial literacy, housing, youth, whatever it is. We need all of that. We need assistance in all of that. And there can never be enough help. There can never be enough people helping to bring us that equity. So we're just one organization and a group of people amongst, you know, I would say a bigger group, but it's still limited. We, there should still be more people spending some of their time to uplift our community. And we're just one of those groups that try to take our skill set. Nova is a college educated I even think he has his master's and he's also self-educated, mm-hmm. has a ton of skills. Myself, our board members, we take all of our skill set and our strengths and we make it happen. Uh, we let it be known to other people in this nonprofit space that we are a diverse Black-led organization. Yeah. And there aren't many organizations that's Black-led. A friend of mine told me the other day that Black people were trying to survive. Like, we're just trying to survive that sometimes people don't have time and the energy to get involved in community service. So because of that, there's not a lot of Black-led organizations that are in some of these spaces that we're in uh, trying to provide equity in some of these areas. So that's what we do. And then, you know, since the fire happened in January, the social support service Mm -hmm. that 
we have our hands full with right now is bringing fire safety education to the Black community, the diaspora Black community, including household of African ancestry, household of African immigrants ancestry, and generational African-Americans. And this project, we titled it so that way it could resonate with the Black community. Uh, It's called Toure Tower Fire and Alarms Project. And it's a two-prong project where we're going to be installing free smoke alarms for our people and in their homes. All you have to do is just set up an appointment and we'll go and install a smoke alarm. Uh, Why smoke alarms? Well, in 70% of fire deaths, there is never a working smoke alarm. So if we put smoke alarms in, in our homes, we would increase the chances of survival. And then the second part of that is hosting fire safety workshops. So it's great that you have a working smoke alarm so you'll know when there's smoke. Um, that second part is the fire safety education mm-hmm. where we're going to be educating our people in our language, mm-hmm. you know, what to do in the fire, what type of building that you live in. Is it fireproof? Is it not fireproof? Yeah. We're going to emphasize closing doors behind you, just different things like that. And we want to make this an ongoing conversation, not just something that is reactive to what happened, but let's make this an ongoing conversation so that way we're not impacted as much as we have been in the past. Since this is a platform for African immigrants, for the most part, I want your listeners to know that in two fires this year and in 2007, just two fires, right? Mm -hmm. In two residences, 27 people from the African immigrant community have passed away in two fires, 27 people. That is a catastrophe. And we can't just not do anything about it. And at the moment, we're the only organization that is focused on changing that. Yes, that's so powerful. And I'm glad you're doing that because there's a need for that education within our community to understand fire safety and actually looking for some of the flaws of landlords. What are the things that they're supposed to provide to the tenant and they are not providing it for all this safety? And all those education has to take place whereby an apartment may not have enough heat that people feel like they have to put on a space heater that may be really dangerous for them and their safety. So all those education is needed, and I'm so glad that your organization, BABA, is really working on that because it's a grassroots work that is needed to be done, and I'm glad that you're championing that and you're doing it, you know, because those are part of the needs. As I understand what also BABA has done before, or you try to do, I know you also focus on children of African immigrants as well as African-American in terms of combining, bringing them together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So we have immigration programs. We have uh, educational programs where we've given books on civil rights leaders to mostly African immigrant children. So that way, regardless of what information they're being told in the house, that they know what the civil rights movement is. You know, we've done community cleanups uh, to where we've brought diverse black people together yes uh, and you know we have a, a very active whatsapp group where people mm-hmm. in there are, are diverse it's not just you know africans not just african-americans and you know just helping speaking each other and there's been a ton because of our organizations there's mm-hmm. been a ton of connections from people who wouldn't have had the opportunity or the platform to come together 
and use your skill set for the greater good. Yeah, that's good. I don't know whether you, which I know you are aware of or not, uh, regarding the gang affiliation that takes place within a youth, African immigrant youth and African American, also among the Latino, because all of us live within the same community. So have you been able to tap into that area, talking about gangs and gang affiliation and violence that comes with it? Slightly, I have. Uh, we haven't rolled out any like comprehensive program yet, as we have done with say like this fire safety project, because we're an unfunded organization and we're doing all of this yeah, massive work on a volunteer basis. We have to move slow. We're moving slow in what we want to do. We would love to address that as heavy and as hard as anything else. But myself, as the lead of it. I speak to the youth a lot. You know, whenever I'm around Africans, I don't just, oh, you know, how's the weather? How's the, you know, if I'm around youth, I'm trying to see what's going on, what's causing some of these issues. Do they need jobs? What are they interested in? I have been in discovery phase. I have been speaking to as many youth as I possibly can to learn why do I keep seeing headlines of gang violences and people murdering people. I keep seeing African names, mm-hmm. keep seeing African mm-hmm. names. Mm-hmm. I, so I have been just doing that like proactively, that, just yeah. that discovery yes. and yeah. just l- gaining some of that information. And with that information, as I usually do, I take information and I turn it into action. And really uh, from what I've learned so far is that it's just a lack of jobs. It's just a lack of jobs and income. You know, a lot of, and this isn't, you know, groundbreaking information. We all know this. A lot of what causes the youth to go astray, they're really, right, the goal, they're looking for money to be able to fund their expensive clothes. That's it. Mm -hmm. And their cool lifestyles. That's it. And usually that money, and they they don't want to go the traditional long route, which is go to school, earn a skill, Yeah. And make your money over a long period of time. You know, they, they're looking for fast money yeah. and, you know, to be able to splurge. And as they're doing that, that lifestyle includes living a certain type of way and having these gang wars. So as we are gaining that information, we will be partnering up with other organizations that mm-hmm. have been doing this for quite a while. Mm-hmm. There's an organization in Queens. And there's even an organization here in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we're in these networks, we're in these circles, yeah, and yeah. Uh, very soon we'll, we will be sitting at that table to address um, some of this gang violence. This issue, because that education is needed in our community as well, regarding the, uh, the issue of gang affiliation, whereby many of these youth think it's only for the safety issue. They have to be safe. Apart from trying to make money out of things, maybe from selling drugs, or getting involved in illegal activities. So all those things has to be addressed within our community. If I can be of any help, I will be willing to do that as well myself. So please tap me on. (laughs) Whatever help I could be, I will be willing to do that. Knowing that African-Americans and the African immigrants share the same common ancestry heritage. And in America, most African immigrants reside within the same community as African-Americans and other people of color, including the Latino. 
since you've been engaging in both communities, what do you think are common misconceptions between African immigrants and African Americans? So let's go, not what I think, what I've learned. So the African American community, you know, when I've asked this question, they've said that African immigrants are closed off. You know, they don't really say hello to their neighbors, things like that. And then the African immigrant community, some of their complaints on the African American community is just all the trauma and the bullying that was done from when years passed when it wasn't so cool to be African. So there's that. And then also, you know, sometimes there's just bad, like, confrontations with one another. I think this is the problem, Auntie Kim. We have a lot of trauma, and we're limited in so many ways. Compared to other groups, we have limited resources. So because we have limited resources, we tend to do things for survival. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes we cut corners and hurt each other and may not be able to even give opportunities to one another. And what happens is when we come across with one another, we have so much baggage mm -hmm. that when this baggage exhibits itself, we're like, oh, all of these things that I've heard about you, it's true. So then we indict our whole race yeah. and our whole ethnicity. I know for me, I, whenever I have a less than favorable experience interaction with any black person, I immediately just forgive that person right then and there. Mm -hmm. And I charge it to their head and not their heart. And I mm -hmm. charge it to our history. And if we just did that, if we stop indict indicting our entire race and our entire ethnicity off of bad interactions with one another that yeah. those interactions are influenced by baggage, mm -hmm. you know, but some of us don't know that. We just think this person is just trying to harm me. Yeah. This person is being unfair to me. Mm -hmm. You know, this person is being rude to me mm -hmm. and they are in full control of the behavior that they're ex yeah. exhibiting right now. Yeah. If we just, you know, more of us need to be aware that we just have a lot of baggage mm -hmm. and we have to just forgive one another for the sake of the greater good. Yes, uh, that's so powerful what you just said because the baggage of colonialism and slavery continues to push us and we think that we have limited resources instead of focusing as a group together to work against the power that continues to suppress us and to elevate ourselves and to see what both of us can gain from each other. What can African-American gain from African immigrants? What can African immigrant gain from African Americans? You know, that is so important for us to be able to realize that and start changing things around. Because immigrant that comes in here, and I'm going to include Latino because they also are of African descent. So all of us live within the same community. They group all of us together. You never see somebody who came from Europe living in your community who are also immigrants. You may not ever, ever even look at somebody white from Europe and saying that they need green card or they need papers or they're here to take your job. You may never see them as that because the society already programmed our minds to believe that it's only person of color that they are here and they're not supposed to be here, or is only person of color, and they are the oppressors, and they are the only one to be attacked. You know, so we have to actually educate ourselves and see how we can build that bridges. And that's part of what you are doing, which I really appreciate a lot. So what are some of the other projects, apart from what you're doing, 
with Baba. Do you also work with other organizations? Have you started, you know, looking into working with other organizations also? That is yeah. African-American focus as well as, I keep saying it, Latino also, people from the yeah. South America as well. That is our biggest strength. Because we don't have funds, mm-hmm. what drives us is our connections and our partnerships and our collaborations mm-hmm. that we proactively do. Any organization that you can think of here in New York City, we're pretty much connected to. And we're always open to do partnerships and work with. What do other people? So are you also connected with schools, public school system? As you know, this is a shared space that brings children of different communities together. Whether you know you're talking about African Americans, African immigrants, or the Latinos. So it would be great to actually work with schools to be able to connect with youth of different backgrounds. Have you thought about that? Yes, um, we have some schools um, in our network. We have some teachers in our network. We have earlier this year, Nova and I, we actually went in to do a read aloud day. I think it was National Reading Day, read a book day, something like that. So we went in as visibly you know, educated black men, because if society tells you there are in positive representation of young black men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we went into a, a local school in the Bronx, I believe it was a middle school, and we read to them oh, in, you know, to show them we know how to read and we know how to analyze, mm-hmm. you know, we know how to storytell. Mm-hmm. You know, Nova's really good at that. And I, I think I did a pretty okay job also. So, uh, you know, that's one school, you know, we, we, have, we know a bunch of teachers. So, We've done some school work, absolutely. So how has Baba been able to deal with some of the inner challenges of many African youth? I want to focus on that. In terms of being able to balance between both worlds of understanding of their Black identity in this country. We've done that program before where we've uh, distributed maybe about, you know, over a dozen books. It was a book competition or, or rather I forget what it's called but basically you know we read Malcolm X book okay over a period of time that's one program we, we plan to do that a lot more uh, so black identity you know I think education like you know because self-education or community education that's the only way like if you don't educate yourself on the good the bad and the ugly of history you will not know yourself you yeah. will not know yourself. Yeah. So, that's the only way we really, you know, we've done these programs in the past. We do need to ramp it up. We do need to ramp it up. You know, we need to educate them on positive representation mm-hmm. of our stories. Yes. We have stories. We have uh, factual stories. We have myths, like all of that, right? So, again, we tend to accept mythology yeah. and facts from other cultures and communities, we have those same stories, you know? So we're born black for a reason. Mm -hmm. Like this is not by mistake, Mm -hmm. right? And we're not, not black, we're black. So we need to just build our culture and our institutions and be ambassadors, right? Like they don't, you know, other people don't come to us for us to be like them. They come to us for us to, Tell them who we are. So we have to love everything about us. You know what I'm saying? And also understand that it's not what's better. 
no, what we have is what we have and is good enough. You know, that's it. Mm -hmm. So um, we just need to just educate ourselves on who we are mostly. And that's so powerful what you said. Other people come to you to tell, for you to tell them who you are is very powerful. If you don't tell people who you are, nobody will know. And they will give you a label that they think fits you. And that's one thing that we need to be aware of within our community, within African-American community, African immigrant community. We need to be aware and embrace who we are, our culture, our tradition. You know, it's so important because that's what defines you. That's what says, you know, this is who you are. And we can never erase that from our, our background. So I'm so happy that, and I know you're working on a lot of future projects. I don't even need to, you already mentioned it. I don't even need to ask you any more about that. I know you, you're dealing with so many things. I thought maybe Baba was dealing with only the youth, but you talking today, I see that there's so much engagement that you are making and you are integrating to, to so many diverse areas of what is needed as the need come within the community and implement things, you know, which is so powerful. And I'm glad you're also working with some teachers within the public school system because that is needed. Our presence is needed because a lot of our children are within this school. And one thing that I also found that is that there's so many parents when they go to school, they don't know how to ask questions or advocate for their children. I'm talking about African immigrant parents because they come from a country whereby, you know, whatever the adult says is all right without even further asking questions. So those are some of the education that is needed even for the parents of the community. So thank you so much for that. So how can our listener connect with Baba online? Go to our website, mm-hmm. babaunity.org. So that's babaunity.org. You can also email us, info at babaunity.org. The best way to connect with us is to donate. We are, again, unfunded organization, but we operate and we serve like organizations that are, getting a half a million dollars a year, mm-hmm. you know, $20 million donations from donors. We do just as much work as them, you know, but yeah. we have nothing, you know. So uh, for anyone listening to this, go to our website, babaunity.org. We have a couple of donation links on there. Donate and support us so that way we could uh, ramp up this education uh, programs so that way our youth know who they are, uh, we could have more programs to serve the everyday needs of our people, whether it's fire safety, whether it's food, addressing food insecurities, whether it's advocacy on housing, everything. You know, there's a ton that we need. We want to do it all, but we're very, 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 very limited right limited now. Limited in your resources. I'm, I'm glad you said that. Even apart from donating money, some people may be able to donate time. Yes, and bring we need a lot their, of that. And bring their expertise in to chime in on what they can help you with. So thank you so much for closing. Thank you. Pansa Pansa continue to normalize conversation about the importance of community engagement regarding African immigrant experiences in America. And as I always said, as we continue to embrace who we are, our heritage, we are publicly continue to discuss issues that is affecting us. So we are shredding away the stigma associated with uncomfortable dialogue. Thank you so much, Mr. Abdullahi Sisi, for coming to Pansa Pansa and for outstanding work you are doing in community engagement, because not too many people are forward in doing that. And I'm so happy that you are one of the second generation, I, I would say, 
that took that initiative. I wish more youth, more of those who were born here or brought here at a very young age, take initiative to do what you are doing or tap into other things. Like I told Dr. Pelechi before Lambert, and I said, it's not a matter of, oh, you went to an Ivy League, you have this degree, but what are you giving back to the community that you come from that brings you to who you are? Because when we talk about people with different diplomas from prestigious university, there are millions of people like that. But the people that society remembers are those who give back, who are making changes in people's life. And we need more of people like you to actually galvanize and bring so many differences and changes to the community. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Sister Kemi, Auntie Kemi. You know, you, you're a trailblazer because you're Nigerian. Nigerians <laughs> are the clear leaders in pushing our cultures forward. We appreciate all Nigerians, and I appreciate you, Auntie Kemi. You know, you have this contemporary vibrance about you. You're a thought leader. I've learned a ton from you. And uh, I actually always talk about you when it comes to, you know, whenever people like come to me and say, hey, just let's help, you know, let's do this program. Da, 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 da. I'm like, reach out to Auntie Kim. I always, <laughs> I always talk about you. You know, so yeah. thank you for you, for the work that you're doing. Thank you for this platform and this podcast, uh, because we need these stories and these platforms. So thank you also. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponzo Ponzo Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponzoponzo.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at pansa.pansaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourselves.